0: Flushcare.com slash weight loss
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history. Like dregs, rain, and jackets. Oh, Sam, do you know what I want to do? Leather and
0: tea. Nice. I think leather and tea would be good. Or we could do bees, fleas and sleaze, Um, <laughs> or trees, peas and freeze. So freeze mm. is all about the history of the climate, and I think we should definitely take that on since the, the globe is warming. However, that is to digress monstrously as ever, because in this episode, as always, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining... Have those histories, interesting as they are, linked together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of bathtubs, bathtubs is in fact all about Archimedes in ancient Greece, the discovery of displacement, bathtubs in ships, and it's also about the rise of gangsters like Al Capone. Of course it is. Or that the history of hacking is in fact all about code-breaking And World War Two. Now, those were two of our recent homeschooling episodes, which long may they continue, even though the kids are now back at school. They are. um, And that's quite nice for me. (laughs) I'm very, I'm very lonely. The house feels totally and utterly empty.
1: Now, uh, who is this man talking? Let me say, if history was a bad habit, say an addiction to gambling, then this man would be the addiction counsellor. Of all time, his couch would be long and comfy, his patience endless, his sympathy unmatched, his counsel wise. He would listen to everything that history had to say, query history's motives and help history move on. He is the Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. (laughs) Hello, hello. And the man not sitting opposite me because we are still social distancing
0: in these grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were a bad habit-related historian, he'd only be the Sherlock Holmes of history, bar the awful opium habit. So sleuthy are his historical skills, so coldly clinical and logical are his powers of deduction in following up His historical clues. So elegant does he look in a deer stalker hat and smoking jacket. And I could go on and on, but I think you've probably already guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis.
1: Hello, everyone. Um, We're doing Bad Habits. This is a good one. It is a good one. Yeah. It's a very good one.
0: And we're doing it because my friend Angela McShane uh, wrote a wonderful article about bad habits And Early Modern Women. Uh, And I read it uh, with great glee and enjoyment. It's one of the best things I've read in a long time. Um, I wanted to read it. I wanted to force myself to read it because I'm so busy at the moment. I read it um, and I thought what would make me do it was actually doing something on bad habits. So I'm going to be talking all about that. But first... I wanted to ask you about
1: your bad habits. Do you have any bad habits? Oh yeah, loads. I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a walking bad habit. Um, uh, mainly consumption based, food and drink based. Um, I could probably add. Is 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 impatience a habit? Uh, yes. Um, yes I think- a, a habit of behaviour. Um, gambling. It's not good, James. I think we should probably move on. <laughs> I, I have very. I do have bad habits, but not in a sort of. I don't gamble. Um, mm. I think
0: I buy too many books, uh, I drink far too much coffee, uh, I am, like you, quite impatient, uh, in a good way, though, in a good sort of alert, you know, getting things going way. I work far too hard, I'm far too nice, I think that's a bad <laughs> habit, I'm far too nice.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, all, all these, these kind of habit, habits of behaviour. Gambling, uh, I mean, you say you buy a lot of books, and the beauty of gambling is you. it's like buying one book, but with the chance of winning 100
0: <laughs> Do you know I've never ever been interested in I've never ever been interested in gambling oh. at all. I um I I once gambled on the on the um Grand National. Uh and I won, but nonetheless I I didn't I didn't gamble. But I have a I have a very good friend who's made a whole career as a professional gambler. Is he? Uh, He's very impressive. In yeah. fact bought a bought a house on the proceeds Goodness me. of of it. Yeah. Well, but, but what did he, he or she gamble on? Uh, all sorts of things sports generally oh, right, uh, right. and was superb um, real kind of but also knew the the sort of the algorithms of gambling so understood right. gambling it uh, wasn't I bought... a punter no. was more was more a kind of an expert but i once met somebody at a, at a party who had just won uh, i think the uh, irish open in uh, cards, in, in, right. in yeah, that's, and, that's quite um, broad. <laughs> in maybe, br- maybe. bridge or some bridge. Poker. Okay, poker, the Irish probably. Poker <laughs> Open, <laughs> right. and and he just won one point right. four million. Wow! Uh, but however, the the week before had been minus three hundred thousand down. Oh dear! And and had to basically borrow the money from friends in order to enter. Now, what would happen if you know if you'd lost? Yeah. It's fine going going up. But, um, I
1: suppose I've always been interested in gambling because I'm interested in games of any description, James, and um, I've always done a bit of uh, historical research into it um, and come across all sorts of wonderful things. And recently, a, a great collection of um, bets laid down in gentlemen's clubs in the 18th century in London, uh, which were truly fantastic. That was that was what you talked about, I think. Yes, I've definitely talked about that on, on, a, definitely a, talked on about a podcast. That. But what are we going to do today? Come on, what, what should we talk about? Well, I'm going to be talking about intoxicants. Uh, I've been
0: following for a long time a couple of brilliant projects, uh, partly that uh, Angela McShane's been involved in, but also Phil Withington uh, at Sheffield, who's a brilliant uh, professor of early modern social and cultural history. And and they've done some brilliant sort of very wide-ranging stuff on looking at the impact of intoxicants. So we're talking here drinks, drugs, Drink drugs, tobacco, things like snuff um, that are that are sort of harmful antisocial habits uh, that have a re- a profoundly economic and social impact to them. They have a political edge. There's a material sort of life to them. So I'm going to be talking about that uh, first of all, uh, because they've got some wonderful material that I think our listeners will be interested in. And a lot of it is all online. So you can actually go along and see the depositions yourselves. And then I'm going to be talking about the material culture of bad habits Mm. from the perspective of gender and female agency. And in particular, snuff taking. Ah! I know, I'm so excited. Have you ever
1: snuffed some snuff?
0: No, I've never. I've no. Ne- I'm. I'm very clean. Mm. Um, very clean indeed. I've never snuffed anything. Mm.
1: Um, no. Maybe, maybe very it's time. Cl- James. Very clean
0: living. Um, <laughs> well, my, I main, let... my main vice, I think, is coffee at the moment. Mm. Um, Do you sniff that? I don't. I tend not. To <laughs> snort, I tend not to snort it, but I am rather partial to chocolate coated coffee beans yeah which always end up in my Christmas stocking
1: very good very good well listen I'm going to start you did mention Sherlock Holmes so I'm going to talk about Sherlock Holmes Oh, good, good. So I, th- I thought that was a good place to start, because he he was addicted to all sorts of stuff. Really, really interesting. And also the way that his descriptions were described. He's Obviously, you think of his figure, everyone. He's got his dear Storga hat, but he does have his pipe. He, in fact, had three pipes. Uh, one from clay, one made from wood, one made from cherry wood. He was a compulsive smoker throughout all of the books. He's definitely addicted to his pipe. He also smokes cigars. He smokes cigarettes. Uh, but primarily... His pipes, but it wasn't the only bad habit that Sherlock Holmes had. I mean, just or briefly, actually thinking about what's going on here with Sherlock Holmes um, and his tobacco habit and how uh, bad habits can have a really fascinating broad history, obviously. Uh, if we think about tobacco, then you need to think about uh, the tobacco plantations, the, the long history of what's been going on in America from um, 1612 is the first time a, a, a crop uh, of tobacco was harvested for sale on the European market. 1612, so long ago. Um, and so close to the, you know, the, early, uh, the early pioneers of America. That's John Rolfe, colonist in Jamestown so there's you know the entire tobacco economy what 's going on in America, and how it gets transported to uh, to britain and and why Sherlock Holmes is smoking a very fascinating colonial history there and um, but also he uh, we know that he takes cocaine he also takes opium in his books the cocaine itself that's interesting uh again has a colonial history uh, it's the incas of colombia peru and bolivia who start off chewing it then the spanish arrived and they discover what's going on they try and ban it uh, and they describe it as an evil agent of the devil but then they soon realize that the uh none of the none of the um Uh, the native South Americans, can actually do uh, as much work as they had been doing before in the fields or in the gold mines. So it's not long before the Spanish are actually distributing cocoa leaves to to the labourers three or four times a day to make them work a bit harder. Uh, What's really interesting about Sherlock Holmes's use of drugs is how important it actually is to the storyline. So the first description of it, it comes in *A Study in Scarlet* in 1887. This is the first book, it's the first description, and it's at the beginning of chapter two. That's how important it is to Conan Doyle's uh, desire to, to, you know, to get across a sense of who Sherlock Holmes is and what he's like. Um, little quote here. Nothing could exceed his energy when the working fit was upon him, but now and again a reaction would seize him, and for days on end he would lie upon the sofa in the sitting room, hardly uttering a word or moving a muscle from morning to night. On these occasions I have noticed such a dreamy, vacant expression in his eyes that I might have suspected him of being addicted to the use of some narcotic, had not the temperance and cleanliness of his whole life forbidden Such a notion. So that's Watson writing rather naively, I suspect, about his early experiences of meeting Sherlock Holmes. And as the books go on, then you suddenly realize that, uh, well, Watson's eyes open a little to what's actually going on. So the next one, 1890, so this is three years after the first novel which, as I said, was a study in Scarlet. This is the sign of four. And again, this is at the very beginning of the book. This is the first page of chapter one, right at the start of the book. Uh, Once again, this is uh, the sign of four for 1890, the second book in the series. Sherlock Holmes took his bottle from the corner of the mantelpiece and his hypodermic syringe from its neat Morocco case. With his long white nervous fingers he adjusted the delicate needle and rolled back his left shirt cuff. For some little time his eyes rested thoughtfully upon the sinewy forearm and wrist all dotted and scarred with innumerable puncture marks. Finally he thrust the sharp point home, pressed down the tiny piston and sank back into the velvet-limed armchair with a long sigh of satisfaction. Three times a day, for many months, I had witnessed this performance, but custom had not reconciled my mind to it. On the contrary, from day to day, I had become more irritable at the sight, and my conscience swelled nightly within me at the thought that I had lacked the courage to protest again and again. I had registered a vow that I should deliver my soul upon the subject, but there was that cool, nonchalant air of my companion which made him the last man with whom one would care to take anything approaching to a liberty. His great powers, his masterly manner and the experience which I had had of his many extraordinary qualities all made me diffident and backward in crossing him. Yet upon that afternoon, whether it was because which I had taken with my lunch or the additional exasperation produced by the extreme deliberation of his manner, I suddenly felt I could hold out no longer.' What is it today, I asked, morphine or cocaine? He raised his eyes languidly from the old black leather volume which he had opened. It is cocaine, he said, a 7% solution. Would you care to try some? <laughs> so we've got Holmes actually, uh, you know, pressing the drugs there onto Watson. Um, and, you know, thinking very... Poor broad, Watson. Poor old Watson, poor old Watson. <sighs> um so put upon yeah absolutely but um it's worth being aware here of what's going on um and 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 you know it it wasn't against the law at the time this kind of use of narcotics with and without medical supervision was very much without any stigma. And this is in 1870, 1890. And, you know, think about this. Even in in 1916, so this is the First World War, you could walk into Harrods, okay, and you could buy a kit to send to your friend living at the front called a welcome present for friends at the front, and it would contain morphine, cocaine and syringes. Middle of the First World War. How about that so cocaine was actually continues to be unregulated in Britain until the passage of the Dangerous Drug Act of nineteen twenty and it's not just cocaine there's a um, laudanum which is a tincture made from opium um it's also used Victorian women have prescribed the drug for their menstrual cramps and uh, you know there's a much broader history going on here and it, it's uh it's fascinating sort of dipping your toe into it, which you can do very well and very satisfactorily by reading some Sherlock Holmes.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? oh do you know another route in for a sort of modern take on cocaine addiction is volume three of stephen fry's autobiography where he is eye-wateringly open uh about all the sort of paraphernalia of of cocaine where to get it his experience of where he took it all sorts of things um, including in Buckingham Palace, I think, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm remembering uh, correctly, but all sorts of places. He's very, very confessional uh, in that volume. What I am particularly interested in, and I'm going to reverse the examples that I was going to do, I'm particularly interested in the material evidence of bad habits. So in other words, the objects and paraphernalia of bad habits connected in particular with intoxicants. So from drinking vessels, ashtrays, cigarette cases, and importantly for what I'm going on to talk about, snuff boxes. And as I said, I've been reading a very stimulating new essay by Angela McShane, uh, who's a very good friend of mine. Uh, She is a terrific historian, and it's one of the best articles I've read in ages. And imagine this, this morning... Uh, In amongst the rain, the sun was coming through, I was indulging in my own bad habit of drinking far too much coffee, reclining on the sofa and reading uh, this piece. It absolutely fizzes with intellect, theory, wit, moving personal reflections and also is based on a deep, deep knowledge of material culture in the early modern period so from 1500 through to the 19th century and Angela uh, for many years ran the history of design MA uh, at the Victoria and Albert Museum and also their doctoral program. Uh, She was also head of the objects collection at Wellcome in London so what she doesn't know about this kind of thing is you know you know nobody knows more than her the essay appears in a book edited by the wonderful mary wiesner hanks uh, a book called challenging women's agency and activism in early modernity which actually uh, would you believe and shameless self plug here uh, is is out in a book series that i edit for amsterdam university press but the 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 title of the essay is bad habits and female agency and basically what it looks at the main argument that it's putting forward is that through the 17th 18th and 19th centuries women of all levels of society consumed tobacco and in actual fact this has often gone under the radar but in effect it was an everyday habitual activity that wasn't really worth commenting on so what this means is is actually very little is left in the written record, which means that we have to turn to the objects themselves in order to study it. And they themselves are just absolutely fascinating. But one of the things I love about this article is just some of the personal anecdotes that come into it. And I love in particular the opening, which I hope you'll indulge me if I read it out to you. I have always hated tobacco. I grew up among heavy smokers and many of my close relatives did not reach the age I am now due to smoking-related cancers and conditions. I campaigned against smoking at school and at work and I argued with my mother about her smoking almost all of my life. If she could have read this chapter in which I explore how white early modern women on both sides of the Atlantic, however unwisely, used tobacco to enhance and empower their social lives, she would laugh and cough at me like a particularly smoky drain. I dedicate this study of women and tobacco to her memory. Perhaps I'm finally, if belatedly, trying to see things from her point of view. And just to give you an example of what what this means... She starts with a, a diary extract from a prominent Quaker living in Philadelphia from one of the leading Quaker families. It's a woman called Elizabeth Drinker, and it's in eighteen o seven. And this woman describes in her diary visiting a a, 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 a kinswoman called Nellie Sidden, um, and she argues that she goes along. Um, because old Aunt sweat had just died, uh, and drinker was passing on her aunt's most treasured possessions to her to the, her female heir, and among them was her Bible, her sampler, in other words, her needlework, her thimble, but most importantly a silver snuff-box which shows even among really religious women in the United States at this period snuff was really really important um there's evidence that tobacco taking and tobacco taking throughout this period was either tobacco that you smoked either you know in a pipe or it was tobacco that you you sniffed or you or you chewed so it was snuff and there's all sorts of stuff um, that that's around there. That's in judicial records and personal documents. There are mentions in in periodicals, in literary publications. But more than anything, the most important thing is the material culture. We can pick it up in travellers' diaries who refer to women who are smoking. So particularly prevalent is tobacco smoking among women in the English maritime regions especially in the west country which I thought would be something you'd be mm. very interested in and there's there's a sense that that of real disgust with it so in terms of it the the dirtiness of it and particularly for women that actually smoking a pipe Smoking tobacco was actually not very good for your for your image. It led to sort of blackened teeth. One of the most one of the most unusual uh, examples that I encountered in this was a woman who suffered from uh, just overwhelming melancholy and depression. A woman called Hannah Allen, who was a was a pipe smoker, and the reason we know this is because she reveals it in a description of a suicide attempt where she describes putting poisonous spiders in a pipe with tobacco and trying to kill herself by smoking them i've never never heard of anyone trying to smoke a, a poisonous spider absolutely extraordinary so there's this sort of gendering of of smoking between pipe smoking versus snuff and what's really interesting is the way in which the taking of snuff actually connects to so many other uh, themes that we've looked at before we've talked about pockets before and of course the little snuff boxes can be taken and sort of slipped in a pocket they're also connected to handkerchiefs we've studied handkerchiefs in the past so the handkerchiefs sort of you put over your mouth as you're as you're snorting it up but at the heart of this of this project is a collection of over a hundred snuff boxes in museums and collections in Europe and America that are connected to women. They've either been given to women, and we know that because of the inscriptions, or they we know it because there are uh, women's names or initials on them, or that there's some kind of providence record that goes down along with them. And there are an extraordinary range of things from beautifully gold, silver, uh, painted, enameled, bejeweled examples down to pretty sort of ordinary things, tin, steel, copper, wood, brass. So the whole range of society is using it. There's, a, there's also a remarkable uh, example of an embroidered uh, version on it. But at the heart of this article is trying to argue for for the involvement or consumption of tobacco as a as a way of women achieving power and agency and this happens in a in a range of ways that we can think about i mean firstly thinking about the material object itself there's a you can think about that from the the perspective of giving uh the of giving the the boxes the snuff boxes away to people, giving them as bequests, and so rather like the example that we saw at the outset, giving it to family is a sort of is is a way of establishing connections also the sociability of sharing snuff, so there are sharing boxes, so people actually coming along and having their and 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 sharing in the snuff that you have. There are also designs on the boxes themselves um, that talk about friendships and alliances. And there's one snuff box dating from 1667, uh, owned by Joan Bacon, which has Charles II's coat of arms on it. So you can think there about political allegiance. There are examples of women using snuff boxes in really mischievous ways. And there's an example that's given in here of a story in the ladies magazine in 1774 and it's the tale of this sort of rather pompous man named Mr D who comes along uh, to tea and is persecuted by a family of sisters and they basically give him adulterated snuff which makes him go a bit peculiar and sneeze and he sort of he reaches for his his handkerchief to sort of to, to deal with the sneeze and it dips in soot and then he brings it up to his face and his face is covered in soot and he's basically a, a laughing stock. There's also an example of somebody coming to, I think it's Mary Wollstonecraft, um, talks about a, a family visit where somebody comes along and is presented with a snuff box. They open the snuff box, and there's an artificial mouse uh, attached to the bottom. So you can see how it's sort of used uh, for playfully there. It's also something that can be sexually charged, from the inscriptions that are on the, the boxes themselves that are, that are erotic, the act of taking the snuff, dipping your finger in the snuff when it's between male and female or between people who are attracted to each other. Um, This is something that is a sort of opportunity for flirtation and eroticism. And there's one brilliant example that Angela tracked down of a silver snuff box that's shaped like a a book. And when you open it up, um, there is a phallus on the bottom of the box, so that when people, when the snuff has been taken, the phallus appears. So you can imagine the sort of playfulness of somebody offering snuff, and then the person they're offering it to putting their hand in and taking it, and the the, the owner knows how close they are to actually seeing what's at the at the bottom of it. So this is an extraordinary piece. I think one of the sort of touching things is also at the end, and this connects to. What you were talking about with the colonial impact of intoxicants. And if we're thinking about things like tobacco, you know, where this is based on the labour of colonial enslavement and injustice. And while what we're looking at is often white women's habits and and we're talking about their agency, that actually it rests on the shoulders of other women who have been enslaved to actually produce it. And I'll just leave you with her her ending. So let us end by saluting this crowd of liberty-loving early modern women. Mary Gordon, 1771, who takes snuff and is much addicted to drink. Elizabeth White, 1772, who is very talkative, fond of snuff and spiritous liquors. Elizabeth Young, 1775, a great smoker of tobacco. Cecily Morgan, 1775, much given to smoking, and Martha Thompson, 1782, who snuffs, drinks, and smokes. And with them the women who have we've already met Black Jane, Margaret Buck, Polly Welsh, and Jane Shepherd, but especially Eleanor Armstrong, who snuffed, smoked, drank, and laughed in the face of her hard life, she reminds me of my mum. (laughs) I thought it was a beautiful... Angela, if you're listening, well done. This is one of the best pieces I have read in years.
1: Mm. It's excellent. Makes me want to read it. It's very good.
0: I'll send you a copy,
1: Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, James, I absolutely love that. and I wanted to... um, talk about one of humanity's worst bad habits which is the penchant for creating war. It's something I've studied ever since I began being a historian um, and I studied lots of uh, naval history war in the 18th century but this comes from uh, the 1980s. In fact it's March 1983. It's the very height of the Cold War. Um, Reagan's been president since 1981. The tension between uh, America and Russia is out of this world. One of the problems is that the um the the west of the British and the Americans are doing a series of exercises known as the wintex on cmex winter exercise and the civil military exercise and These are war games and they happen twice a year and they happen between nineteen seventy nine and nineteen eighty nine and in nineteen eighty three uh, they they do something which they've never done before. They actually decide to rapidly escalate an imaginary scenario from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. Um, And the Russians are terrified. They think that actually the Americans are gearing up for war. Um, And as part of these exercises, there are these wonderful documents which are created by... Uh, people in the government, um, and they're civil servants pretending to be ministers. And they're given a whole load of very, very convincing documents upon which to base their decision-making process. So if um, the Russians have done X, what what will you then go and do Y? Um, They had fake uh, newspaper uh, headlines, and they even had a fake speech Uh, which is this, is the Queen's Speech in the Event of Nuclear War from March 1983. It's a fascinating document. I'll just read a little section out of it. Actually very reminiscent of George VI speaking uh, at the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, But remember, this was never delivered. It is fake. Uh, But it's um, it's part of a wonderful collection of imaginary documents made at the height of the Cold War uh, when our bad habits of uh, fighting each other were at their very peak. When I spoke to you less than three months ago, we were all enjoying the warmth and fellowship of a family Christmas. Our thoughts were concentrated on the strong links that bind each generation to the ones that came before and those that will follow. The horrors of war could not have seemed more remote as my family and I shared our Christmas joy with the growing family of the Commonwealth. Now this madness of war is once more spreading through the world, and our brave country must again prepare itself to survive against great odds." I have never forgotten the sorrow and pride I felt as my sister and I huddled around the nursery wireless set, listening to my father's inspiring words on that fateful day in 1939. Not for a single moment did I imagine that this solemn and awful duty would one day fall to me. We all know that the dangers facing us today are greater by far than at any time in our long history. The enemy is not the soldier with his rifle, nor even the airman prowling the skies above our cities and towns but the deadly power of abused technology. Uh, And it goes on and on for several paragraphs, but it's a very, very potent speech indeed. And it is from a truly fascinating collections of documents uh, which survived from the war games in the 80s um, conducted uh, by the British. And those are at the National Archives. Oh, that sounds excellent, Sam.
0: Now, I just want to end with a signpost to a brilliant project that Angela McShane... Uh, was co-investigator in. In other words, she was one of the sort of people leading it. And it's a project called Intoxicants and Early Modernity, England, 1580 to 1740. If you haven't seen it, why not? And go and have a look at it because it's full of all sorts of things. Now, this is a big research project run by these two people uh, involving uh, digital specialists. So it's all online and they have built an amazing database that is free for you all to go and see, that looks at the importance of intoxicants and intoxication on the social, economic, political, material and cultural life of Britain between the 16th and 18th centuries. It's free, it's online and it is based on an extraordinary amount of material. Get this, for for this they have looked at 164 port books. So in other words, all the things that are coming in they're, they have 29,988 origins and destinations. They've looked at over 8,500 ships, over 8,000 merchants and almost 16,500 consignments. So they're looking at how this stuff moves around. They're also looking at infractions. So when people take these substances, they tend to end up in in court because of various sort of you know, ill behaviour or criminal sort of behaviour as a result of being intoxicated in various ways. And they have looked at over 1,000, 1,137 court depositions and cases with uh, 2,876 witness statements, 6,179 participants and 1,877 events. I could go on. They've also looked at probate inventories They've looked at over 600 probate inventories. So these are basically, these are lists of things that you would have room by room at your death. So they've gone through that and looked for, you know, uh, evidence of all this sort of paraphernalia. Um, And you can go through and you can search by key term. um, And I'll just leave you with one uh, deposition Uh, which comes from the Norfolk Record Office. And it's a woman called Susan Bigot uh, who was assaulted uh, at a cellar cellar in an alehouse on the 22nd of October, 1706. On the 22nd of October last, the above-said Susan Bigot was at Coates Cellar in the market and Peter Dearly came down into the cellar and called for several tankards of beer and drunk to susan bigot and from thence they went to Luke Feller's in st swithin's parish and peter dearly spent about three shillings and from thence peter dearly and susan bigot went on to the castle dykes to a cellar called hell cellar And Margaret Dickerson knocked at the door and the nurse came and opened the door and Peter Dearly and Susan Bigot went into a little room and drank. And Peter Dearly made Susan Bigot lay down on the planking, took up her clothes and had carnal knowledge of her body twice that morning. Peter Dearly hath given her the bad distemper called the pox. So there we are, extraordinary deposition connected to connected to drunkenness um, and sexual assault and poxgiving. giving mm. um, There we are. <clears throat> the the demon,
1: demonic <laughs> nature of bad habits, Sam. Very bad, those ones. <laughs> Probably about as bad as you can get. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed that. I've hugely enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to go and have a nice glass of wine right now uh, to Im- embrace a-, a bad habit. Uh... Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you like maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Oh, very
0: good. And you can follow me on Twitter, at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at UnexpectedPod. And you can also follow us all over social media. Social media is itself an incredibly bad habit. Uh, But if you like that bad habit, we are on Facebook. So you can like us there. We are also on Instagram and If you like surfing the net as a bad habit, we are also on our own website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can have a look at everything that we've been up to over the last million years. (laughs)
1: Well, that's it for now, guys. I hope you enjoyed all. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.